So cats can also digest completely the starch. What we really don't know is how much of this starch is used in the small intestine, because this is different. The digestion in small intestine is really a digestion made by amylase that releases glucose, and glucose is readily absorbed by cats when in the gut. But the starch that escapes from this digestion is fermented by the gut microbiota of the cat, and they generate short-chain fatty acids. And this is also absorbed and have several very important uh, actions in the body. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. ProAmpac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. Trow Nutrition, the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending. Kemen Nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Tired of one-size-fits-all solutions that don't quite fit? At Wilbur Ellis, we're bringing custom back to the customer. We know that for your pet food and treats to shine on the shelf, you need to start with the best. After all, even the best recipe is only as good as its ingredients. From nutrition to preservation to blending and bottling, make one call to Wilbur Ellis Nutrition to find it all. We don't sell to you, we work with you. A true partnership to meet your needs. Follow Wilbur Ellis Nutrition on LinkedIn to learn how partnering with a purpose could double the power of your team. Hi everyone and welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast, where I seek to discuss current research and how I may apply to innovation in the pet and nutrition industries. I'm your host, Julia Pezzali, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Alos Karsioffi about the topic of carbohydrate in cat diets. Welcome, Dr. Karsioff, to our podcast. So, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. We are very glad that you accept our invitation. And before we talk about carbohydrate in cat diets, do you mind talking about uh, your background, your audience, and explain uh, all the great things you have done over the years and how you are in your current position today? So, my name is Aulus Karsioffi. I am a veterinarian, and I did a master in basic nutrition and a PhD in clinical nutrition, dogs and cats, inside a clinical department of internal medicine in Sao Paulo. And then I got a position at the university where I teach today, that is UNESP, uh, University of Sao Paulo State. And we are located in that very difficult name for a foreigner, that is Jaboticabal, that is a small countryside in Sao Paulo State. And I was admitted here to work inside a hospital with clinical nutrition. So it was a big challenge for me that my background at that time was basic nutrition, but was a good journey. And then here we opened a discipline on clinical nutrition and endocrine and, metabol and metabolic diseases for undergrad. And the same for a grad level, uh, in master and PhD. And also here we have uh, two very good opportunities. That is, or three. That is, we manage the clinical nutrition nutrition service since 2001, when we deal with uh, daily cases of dogs and cats that require nutritional assistance. Also, another duty that I have here is to work in extrusion laboratory. So we have a complete feed meal here, equipped with a complete extrusion and drying system, and we do research on that. And also we prepare the diets that we like to test on our patients or in our cattery and dog facility. And the third stuff that we have here is a, a colony of 45 beagles and 50 cats that we use for nutritional studies. So this creates a good synergy inside our laboratory 
there is we can do diets or experiments for basic nutrition, understand the ingredients, also the implications of ingredients on extrusion. Also, we can do studies with clinical nutrition, like currently we are doing two studies, one in obesity and one and another in cat, uh, dogs with clinical, with chronic kidney disease. So in these dogs with chronic kidney disease, we are understanding the implications of the, of the disease on protein requirements, energy requirements, and water turnover using isotopes. It was being a, a challenge, but it's very nice. And also in our laboratory, we do service for, for industry, like digestibility, palatability. We don't do, sorry, uh, urine pH, we don't do palatability. Uh, but most we do tests to develop or to validate products that the companies have, especially special ingredients for ingredient suppliers like protein sources, fi fiber sources, fat sources. We do a lot of them. So it's a nice opportunity that I have to work here. Yeah, it's a very nice laboratory. I've been there in some of the courses that Dr. Karsioffi, he also provides in Brazil. He provides a very two great uh, sources and courses in Brazil uh, over the years. And it's an amazing lab and very complete as as I said, it goes from clinical nutrition to basic extrusion, producing the diet and testing on the animals. So uh, it's very nice that you have those facilities in Brazil. And everyone here who's interested to work with Dr. Karsioff, you can also reach out to him and uh, work on doing studies in his laboratory as well. Uh, just to give some perspective to our audience as well, uh, when did you start Dr. Karsioffi with that in Brazil? There are many pet nutritionists uh, a while ago, and how is the scenario today? Pet nutritionists in Brazil, the number are, are increasing. And we have a huge growth in last years in companies. And this company's growth, not in, just in amount of food, but the quality of food. And now we have a lot of co uh, Brazilian companies that do not only super premium, but even clinical diets. And this growth was possible because of the whole chain of ingredient suppliers. So I remember that when I started my, my first studies in the laboratory, that we deal with the difficulties in quality of poultry byproduct meal, that is the main protein source around the global world. And usually our digestibility on the diet was 82, 83%. And now we have so high quality poultry byproduct meal that our diets have some have 88 to 9% of digestibility of the protein for dogs and cats. So with these ingredients, now we saw a huge growth in this area. And we have Brazilian companies that have like several PhD people with master science, and they have research colonies of dogs and cats. And this was one strong growth. And recently, what we are seeing more in Brazil is people interested in do particular nutrition. We, 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 we say like that. There's a, a, full, a, a nutritional approach for an individual dog. And this is mm -hmm. made by veterinarians and also animal scientists that do this kind of support for owners. And they can also balance homemade diets when necessary or they do advises for dogs and cats that needs that, and they work together, veterinary hospitals or big clinic, veterinary clinics, and this is a huge growth. We can monitor this, for example, looking the numbers of our Brazilian Society of uh, Animal Nutrition, we call CBNA. We have, for 20 years, 22 years, we have this pet food uh, forum, kind of internal pet food forum, and when we started, we are 60, 70, and less one was 500 people. So it's a lot of people uh, interested in that. And this means how, grow, how, how this market is growing here. Yeah, no, it's great to see that we see a growth in the pet food industry, not only here in the U.S., but uh, in Brazil and many other countries too. And we're evolving, as you said, not only in number of sales, but also in the quality of the food that we are producing. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about poultry meal and... 
we are going to be talking about carbohydrates today and carbohydrate ingredients in the diet of cats, which can be a little have some controversy. So I'm very excited to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, and to start off, uh, can we start defining what what are carbohydrates? Yeah, carbohydrates are complex settings of ingredients. Or sorry, or, or, of chemical compounds. And I like the division of the National Research Council that they qualify it based on function. And this is easier. So they can be classified as absorbable, the ones that readily absorb it, digestible, the ones that need to be digested, but animals are capable to do this digestion and absorption. The fermentable, that is not digested, but is fermentable. This is soluble fiber, prebiotics, and non-fermentable, they are not digested and not fermented. It's a soluble fiber that we are using more and more in pet food marketing because of the obesity issue. So we are trying to create mm -hmm. these diets that help the management of dogs or cats that are overweight, and we, look a lot, we use this kind of fibers. And it's important to understand that when we talk about absorbable carbohydrate, that is the ultra-processed carbohydrate that we see from human nutritional point of view, they are not used in pet food. So in pet food, the carbohydrates that is digestible are complex carbohydrate, minor processors. We don't grind so much like a flour that we do with the, the, the wheat, for example, to do wheat flour for our foods. And then they are more slowly digestible and they don't create this issue that we see that in human, then we try to, to eat this ultra-processed carbohydrate. They're not present in our diets, even can or extruded diets. So it's more or less the general view of them. I don't know if you would to complete with some information or... Mm -hmm. And when you talk about this complex carbohydrate that we mostly see in pet foods, um, can you define a little bit like is more the starch that we're talking about that we provide yeah. with the ingredients? Yeah, is exactly. The most most of the digestible, practically all ninety nine percent of the digestible carbohydrates in pet food are starch. We use very little. We don't add by propose sugars only in semi moist foods. If you are using semi moist food, they have sugars. Otherwise, it's just complex complex carbohydrate that we call starch. And we have a lot of debate, philo philosophical debates on that. But in mm -hmm. fact, we need to look at the empirical data. So around the world, a lot of uh, institutions, research institutions, fed this to dogs and cats, and they saw that it's very digestible. So I remember one of the first papers on that is by Dr. Lloyd in 1955. So many of us even was born at that time. And they, they, they evaluated starch digestibility in different breeds of dogs. And they found that digestibility of starch by dogs is over 95%. So they digest very, very well that. And... But our talk today is with cats. So cats can also digest completely the starch. What we really don't know is how much of this starch is used in the small intestine, because this is different. The digestion in small intestine is really a digestion made by amylase that releases glucose, and glucose is readily absorbed by cats when in the gut. But the starch that escapes from this digestion is fermented by the gut microbiota of the cat, and they generate short-chain fatty acids. And this is also absorbed, and they have several very important uh, actions in the body. We use prebiotics, fibers in dogs and cats to have these short-chain fatty acids enough for physiological function. And, but we don't separate this digestion in, in cats because of concerns, uh, of welfare concerns, like we can do in pigs, for example. We can separate that. We need to put a, a cannula, and we don't do that. But even with this limitation in, 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 in understanding, we have several papers, and our, our laboratory did a, a study in, and published in 2008, so many years ago, showing that 
even with some variation across sources, starch digests more than 97% of the starch. And we can say that this is a true digestion, not fermentation in the large intestine. Because when you do a proper digest, uh, cooked and grinded starch cats, we don't have an increase in short-chain fatty acids in the feces. They really, we, we, we can infer with that, that most probably they were digested as, and absorbed as glucose. And people have a lot of, as I thought in the start, uh, talking in the start, we have a lot of uh, philosophical questions about that. Yeah. Uh, to, to argue about that, I, I, I always like to use an example. There is the cat with chronic kidney disease. So chronic kidney disease is a situation, as a disease that more than 30, 40% of the cats, and probably uh, over 12 years, and cats over 16 years, probably more than a half of them have chronic kidney disease. And now the industry did a very good job in design diets for this situation. So we can imagine that if you have a 16 years old cat, the chance that they have chronic kidney disease is extremely high, more than a half of the animal have that. And they can survive much longer nowadays, like the life expectancy for this after diagnosis is at least two years. But what's the trick? What is the, what the, the, the nutritionist is doing with this situation? We are feeding them an energy source that have very low phosphorus and very low nitrogen. And this is the starch. So we can argue that cats are carnivores, of, of course, but when we fed them a lot of starch in this com complicated health situation, we saw that they live longer because they can mm -hmm. have our calories, they can burn all the energy that they need, and that energy don't release nitrogen and phosphorus because the kidney can't excrete enough phosphorus and nitrogen. So it's why starch is good in this uh, particular situation. So it is an example that we can overgeneralize that starch is always bad, starch is always good. It will always, only, always depend on the animal and in the situation that you are using it. Yeah, a very important point about, and good example about how starch in that case can be something very beneficial for the animal. And just to, um, just to add, uh, cooked starch is very digestible, right? We need to cook that starch to get okay. these high levels of digestibility. If it's not cooked, it's not going to be very digestible. And But in the dry kibble, we produce through the extrusion process, that is, uh, they're going to be cooked, they're going to be gelatinized and going to be very digestible as well. Um, so you mentioned that cats are car carnivores, so they do not have a requirement for carbohydrates, right? So is there any specific reason that we add um, carbo uh, starch in extruded diets? And what are the major sources today that we use in these diets uh, to provide carbohydrates? What are the ingredients? Yeah, it's very important the point that you told that for anyone, not only dogs and cats, but especially for them, how we process starches made a lot of difference. So they need to be in the right particle size. Uh, we, we here worked in some experiment with grinding to reduce particle size and cooking. But if they are not enough cooked and enough uh, grinded, the digestibility will be lower. But this can be a positive point depending on the diet that you are creating. So we have some published papers and also others have, like Greg Aldrich also, showing that if you moderately cooking the starch, for a, not for a cat, for a dog, you can change the digestibility pattern and the glucose and insulin response. So even the same starch, if you process less, can create different approaches in the diet. But coming back to the, our main question, that's why to use it? The reasons are several. One are strictly related to the extrusion processing. So extrusion needs some material that, can, that need to be plastic. 
and the plasticized dough created during extrusion will bind all the other ingredients that is not plastic in nature, like fiber, minerals, some types of proteins, fat, and create the whole a continuous matrix of material. And when starch is used for this purpose, they are flexible. And then when the kibble get out of the extrusion, they increase in volume. They create cellular structure. Each cell that we look at and see in a kibble represent a drop of water that become vapor. And this vaporization creates the structure that confer crunchiness and crispiness. So to have a nice kibble that is crunch, crisp, these need to have some amount of starch on them. And this is one point that we use a lot of starch in extruded kibble diet. And the other reason is to balance the distribution of the right fuel for that animal. What I mean with fuel? Cells need to leave energy. And they have this energy burning carbohydrate, protein, and fat. All living cells of mammals or birds use starch, protein, or fat. And when we create diets for dogs and cats, we need to balance this for different situations. For example, an obese cat. We learned that they don't deal very well with starch. So we create a diet with a lot of protein. And protein is not there only to provide amino acids for protein synthesis. It's there also to provide amino acids for gluconeogenesis because they need glucose for the cells. The opposite situation is a cat with chronic kidney disease that I exemplified before. When we have a lot of starch, and starch is the main energy source for this purpose. So we look, basically, we need to have starch in the diet for extrusion requirements. This extrusion is not only the machine itself, it's the properties of the kibble, because a crunchy kibble is very important for cats. Everyone that have a cat knows that they crunch, they take one or two and and chew a little, and then noise, the sensation of that noise when they, they chew is very important for the cat. And also to have options to balance the diet regarding the foods that they need in these three types of energy that we can use for the cells. And this is more or less what we balance when we are creating a different kinds of diets for dogs, or sorry, for cats. Yeah, good point about the macronutrient distribution and how in some case, uh, as I said, there's no right or wrong, but in some case, maybe better to have more starch, in other case, more protein. So it's good to have this flexibility. And uh, do you mind telling us the major ingredients that we use, at least in Brazil, to provide the, the, the starch source? Traditionally, the less expensive are cereals. And then... Uh, maize in United States, in Brazil, corn, we don't have too much maize. Rice, we use a lot of rice in Brazil, but rice is a little expensive. Here. It's more for high, higher digestible diets. And we did uh, two experiments with Kansas State University in United States showing that sorghum is also very good. In the past, the sorghum have tannin, and they have this bad idea that sorghum is not palatable and not so digestible because of tannin content, but modern sorghum don't have more tannin. If you want a sorghum with tannin, you need to require and look for a specific type of sorghum. And our data on cats show that sorghum requires better processing. What it means? If you don't cook or grind too well, this diet might have a lower digestibility than the rice-based food. But when you grind and cook well the sorghum, they will have the same digestibility than rice. The only difference is rice is much lower in fiber than sorghum. So the mm -hmm. fiber of the sorghum needs to be taken in account when we're formulating. But as you need to add fiber, it's a way to put fiber in the diet also. 
And surprisingly, we did some experiments with different varieties of sorghum, white sorghum, red sorghum, and common sorghum. And cats always prefer all of them re instead of, of, of corn. It was, we was very surprised on that. And cats like sorghum and dogs also. So they are not unpalatable more, maybe because the changes we did in genetics. And, but nowadays, the industry is looking for different kinds of starch, and they are looking for the grain-free diets. And particularly, I consider this just a marketing opportunity based on owner's perception. The owners have this sensation that cereals is not good for dogs and cats, but in fact, the science do not corroborate with that. Science do not support that. And of course, you can have the same nutritional quality using potato or tapioca or pea or corn or sorghum. It depends on how you balance and how do you process your diet. If they're very well balanced, the digestibility is known, and the raw materials is of good quality. This will not change the metabolism of the animal. It's impossible that a starch from a different source creates so many differences in a cat. So all of them can be exactly the same, but you explore that in different marketings. But that, in general, include uh, and increasing the price of food because, of yeah. course, the cereals is the less expensive. But it, we, we are seeing that most in the United States, also in Brazil, and people are still using that. They have these diets, and people think that they are better, but it depends on how they are processed. And, and we have this huge debate on cardiomyopathy in dog, dilated cardiomyopathy in dogs to tell us that not always this as, as good as we can think, no? Yeah, it's about going back to uh, animals, they need um, nutrients, not ingredients. So they yeah. don't need a specific ingredient and they yeah. are just a carrier of the nutrient. But as right. you said, we need to be aware of the composition because replacing rice with sorghum, you're gonna bring some fiber too. So it's not, they're not exactly the same. So they're providing also different amount of these nutrients. So understanding them and how to balance the formulation properly. So to provide the ideal amount of nutrients is gonna be very important too. Yeah, this is the good, this is the point. Very good. Yeah, and uh, yeah, legumes here uh, kind of popular too. Decrease a little bit because of the, uh, the concern that was raised that there is, so far, there is no data, as well, empirical data, to prove that legumes cause DCM. But their formulations are complex. It's not only ingredients. Like many is about the nutrients. Are we providing them? Are we not? It's about the as I said, again the balance of those nutrients. Yeah. Uh, I remember, Dr. Karsoff, I read some papers that you did about different carbohydrate sources for cats, and how it may impact or not the glucose response. You mentioned that when they are digested glucose absorbed and then goes to the bloodstream and you see a peak in, in glucose in dogs at least. Uh, do we see the same in cats or not? Yeah, it's a good question. And cats are different than dogs in this regard. Uh, we see that dog was domesticated m much before cats and they share the food environment of people. And the breeds of dog that that was domesticated and lived with people that have more agricultural activities. They develop a lot of similarity with people and increase the genes related to starch digestibility and use. So now the dog, the, the, the modern dog, have a glucose pattern response after a food that's very similar to people. So for them, we can say about high uh, speed digested or starts with higher or lower insulin or glucose response. But for cats, it's different. Cats, they can digest starch, they can absorb sugars, but they have a lower amount of enzymes. So we can consider that for a cat, all starches are low, slowly digested. And it's contra sense in people. I don't know if I'm saying the better way in English, sorry, but... We think that as because cats 
have this difficulty in manipulating or this particularity. They not have a dif difficulty. They have a particularity in managing starch. When we fed a high starch diet, cats will have a high blood glucose, high insulin, and this can induce obesity, this can induce diabetes mellitus in a cat. But this is completely wrong with what we saw in, in, in studies. Because of the slowly digestion and absorption of, cat, of starch, all starch for cats is like the slowly digestible or low glycemic index starch for people. And practically, when we fed a high starch meal in cats, we will see some elevation on glucose and insulin in postprandial period, but that is inside the physiological range. They don't develop hyperglycemia, hyperinsulinemia, and they know very no cause of hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia in cats is really obesity or diabetes mellitus. But if we have an obese cat, we have a lot of nice studies showing that they will have an impairment on the glucose and, and insulin balance and utilization of this starch source. So for them, we need to reduce. But if the cat is not obese, it's very normal. And we submitted for British Journal of Nutrition a paper that is under review. It's in the final steps of revision, where we compare two starch sources in, home, in cats living in homes. So we compare what we consider an ideal diet for cats that have 36% of protein. This is one point. We have diets out there that are very low or lower than the ideal, as you can say, as of crude protein. So cats need a lot of protein. But we compare a diet with 36% of protein and almost 40% of starch with a diet with 20% of starch and 55% of crude protein. And we fed these diets in ad libitum system that most owners do to just feed ad libitum. And we follow this, this system. And the diets have to eat this ad libitum for four months, during four months. And then we did a crossover change, the diets of the cats. And what we saw was surprisingly that the high protein diet, it's in. I can't say that it's palatability. It's physiological response to the diet because we tested before the palatability of the diet that they're quite similar. We don't see much difference in a two balls test. But the cats, when are exposed continuously to the high-protein diet, they, in, they eat more. They have less interruption of the hunger. And we did this in laboratory. So we had lipton fed cats these two diets for four hours. Then we fed them for a one hour a very high palatable, high fat commercial diet. And then come back with the experimental diet for more eight hours. What we saw is in laboratory, they don't eat much or uh, different, they take a similar of the two experimental diets in the first four hours, and the challenge meals are also eat the same. So, if the question was palatability regarded to the low, la high starch diet, they will eat less and eat more the challenge meal that's very high palatable. But it's not was the case. What happened is in the first exposition for eight hours, the cat continued eating the high-protein diet, but they eat less the high-starch diet. So we understand that the cats have more sensation, more interruption of the stimulus to eat. And in home, the cats that was fed this high-starch, but remember, 36% of protein, it's a very good amount of protein. All of them was able to keep a stable body weight during four months they didn't gain anyway. And we have groups of males and females, obese and non-obese, so four groups of cats. But when they are ad libitum exposed to this high-protein diet, they become obese. All of them gained weight. They gain a lean mass, but also fat mass. So we saw that starch have stuffs that for the time we didn't realize because of the misconception. 
we just block our mind. No, they are carnivores. They can't fed, we can't fed them starch. But in fact, a little starch, assuring that you have enough protein, can help the management of a cat that is a lipidum exposed to diet, you can see. And this prevent them to become obese. And obesity, in fact, is the main cause of insulin-resistant high glucose levels and, and high release of insulin, but not starch. And we have a nice research that Professor Margaret Henning, she retired now, but Dr. Henning had several publications where she compared in ob old and adult obese and non-obese cats the rate, the different rates of starch and, and protein. And it's very clear, she's, uh, her results, that starch per se is not a problem for a cat, assuring that you have enough protein in their diets. Yeah, very good point. I'm excited to, to read the paper when it's out. I hope it's out soon. And it's a good point and a nice explanation about how one specific nutrient can help in this case with food intake. And even though we know the owners, you know, they have to control for energy intake and calculate, many of them, they don't do. So if they just mm -hmm. put amount of food in the bowl, how can we kind of help making sure the cats don't uh, overeat? Or it's a very tricky, and as you said, the regulation of food intake is also another, can be another topic, but it's important to understand that in this case, the macronutrient composition in this were different and one was able to maintain the cat healthy but control a little bit the food intake which prevented or uh, overconsumption of energy and in this case uh, gain body weight which as I said obesity is a huge epidemic yeah yeah and also it's important in this scenario to consider the cats that we have in home is not the wild cats more yeah. so for example in the nature they live up to five years, three years, six years maximum is the lifespan of them. And now, now our cats will have a life expectancy of 12 to 16 years. So these old guys don't live in the nature. And now they have very limited uh, exercise that they do. This makes a tremendous impact on cat metabolism, and we really don't understand and we underestimate the importance of, of the movement. We have experiences here, for example, the cats that was living dust in home, and then these cats start to escape. So they are mixed and have sometimes outhouse where they play, fight is a problem, <laughs> and try to capture some birds. But a cat in this situation, they, we measure the energy expenditure of this cat and can increase more than 40%. And only doing that, and have, even having a, a delipton exposition of the high palatable diet, they will lose fat mass. And they can lose like in six months or less, like two kilos of fat mass. We saw this in some cats that we monitor. And... So one point that's very important for me is that we are looking just the diet, but diet is limited. Diet is just one part of the yeah. life cycle. We need to look more in exercise. Instead to stay discussing if starch will be a problem, starch can help you or be a problem, depending on the formulation that you do. But we must provide more exercise for our cats, especially after neutering. There is other condition that is not normal in the nature. We have zero cats neutered in the nature before men, you know? And then how these hormones impact them is astonishing. We have another study that we are preparing to submit to use the same two diets. Again, 36% protein, 40% starch versus 55% protein, 20% starch. In male cats, neutral or intact. And these intact cats are totally different individuals. They rarely have more than 10% body fat. That is very low for a cat. Usually they have around 80% body fat. And their energy expenditure is much greater than the counterparts neutered males in the same environment, in home. And these cats didn't change their metabolism according to the diet. 
even changing this ratio of macronutrient in the diet, this don't, don't alter nothing in the entire cats, but this creates differences for the neutral cats. So the neutral cat responds drinking more water with high-protein diet, increasing energy expenditure with more protein diet, increasing lean body mass, but this is caused by the neutering, the removing of or sexual hormones. And in this condition, we need to understand that we can replicate the diet of the feral cats, the diet that's living in the wild for our home. That is not the best for our cats because they are living in very different situations. Very good point about the neutering. And it's important to understand as well that this Uh, neutering population of intact and not intact cats differs between countries. So here in the US, we see a lot of that. In Europe, you see less. In Brazil, you see less. So when you think about diet, we also need to think, as you said, holistically, what are the other aspects on their life they're going to contribute to their health? It's not only diet, but as you said, exercise. And this combination is going to be different if the cat is intact or not and than in countries. If Sometimes you face some issues here in the US about specific diets, but you don't see in other countries and you may think, oh, why is that the case? Well, it's not only the diet, it's how about their environment? Are they exercising mm -hmm. or not? So it's a very important aspect to consider and really like that you brought this point up because some people like to blame sometimes only one thing, you know, and just the diet, yeah. you did something wrong here, but you don't know their lifestyle. So what is everything happening, their metabolism? And um, really important that you said about the neuro cats, we don't see those in the nature and for sure is a different metabolism and how yeah. they respond to different uh, macronutrients. Yeah, if you try to lose weight just eating less, you will suffer much more. If you try to lose weight doing exercise together eating a little less, no? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we just need to find ways to incorporate exercising in cats. And how your loss stuff, by the way, will improve your health, will be totally different because if you try to eat low enough to don't uh, to lose body weight, you you end lo losing lean mass. But if you do that doing exercise, you don't lose or you can even gain lean mass. So you change your body weight much more. And this we need to translate to cats also, but not always we are capable and we need to do more studies on that, like not only on, on the type of food to help these cats. Yeah, and we are important as I said as well, that lean body mass, sometimes when you think about body weight, body weight, but if you lost all your body weight as lean body mass, is not very good, you want to lose body fat, right? No lean body mass. And um, so Dr. Garcia, some of those studies you did with client on cats, right? Yeah, and this is a new challenge because for two reasons. First, in animal welfare, Is, is good to have less in animals in laboratories. And second, and maybe more important, that is the response of an animal that is living in home is not the same because of the influence of environment, management. And, but to use that, you need to have special tools. So we prepare our laboratory to, the, to work on that, developing some uh, methods based on uh, uh, stable isotopes. So we use staple isotopes of hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon-13. And so the owner can just feed their animals. Eat it. Uh, they only need to feed you. The diet that you provide is the only point. And we can understand a lot of aspects of the metabolism of the cats in their routine, the uh, normal routine life. And this is very interesting, I think. Yeah, very good too. As I'm very excited to hear about maybe a future podcast, how you're using stable isotopes to track yeah. their metabolism at home. Yeah. Sure, should be nice. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you very much, Dr. Kartsoff, for joining us today and for sharing all your knowledge about starch and all the different studies your lab are doing. Uh, you have contributed a lot to our knowledge on pet nutrition. And Thank before you. we finish the podcast, I'd like to ask some final questions, not about starch at this point. Um, the first one is uh, when you're looking, I'm going to ask one last carbohydrate. When you think about carbohydrates in cats, what do you think is the future for that? What do you think we're going to be looking into next in research? We need to maybe understand better this impact on carbohydrate on, on ad libitum intake. Because if you manage your cat 
doing restricted amount of food, this is not so important because you, you will limit them to don't eat enough more calories than needed. But in this ad libitum system that several people use, carbohydrate that both fiber in this have a part of this, and also starch, I think that we need to understand better that. And also to understand the long-term effects of the starch if you have some problems, but we don't believe that this is a true hypothesis that can be a problem for a cat, as I told you. Because even though in the nature they don't need starch or sugars, they are capable to digest, to absorb. And this in a non-obese cats do not create any measurable, anything that you can measure that is problem. And But I think that the good side of starch, we need to explore more and to, re, to remove this myth that they can interfere and create some problem for cats. Another problem that we try to address in our laboratory, just to comment, we, as you saw, we like starch. <laughs> we do lots of studies in dogs and cats with starch. Is we prepare our group to understand the importance one part of the metabolism of starch, there is the production of oxalate. And we did some master science, some PhD studies and in laboratory conditions. And we saw that really when a cat eats starch, they end excreting more oxalate in the urine. And calcium oxalate is one of the main stones. Depend on the epidemiological studies that you do is the first or the second after struvite. So maybe the starch have a role in oxalate stones that you need to define better. I think that is an important point. And because in laboratory condition, we only use at health cats. And we saw this increase in the saturation for calcium oxalate but we don't know how a cat that is a stone former will react to that. And also, we was uh, yesterday in a cat con in a cat nutrition meeting in Brazil, and we have a huge discussion about the oxalate stones in cats with chronic kidney disease. But in this condition, the chronic kidney disease cat can develop hypercalcemia. We don't understand why. And this can lead to higher calcium urine excretion. And this is imputed to the high incidence. Up to 30% of cats with chronic kidney disease might develop kidney stones of calcium oxalate. And I have this idea, I don't know about others with the hypothesis, but as we must fed them high starch in order to provide low nitrogen and low phosphorus in their diets, as I explained at the beginning, maybe we create this combination of high oxalate and high calcium urine excretion. And this will be a problem to address in the future because by now, we have no alternatives. Do you know, if we don't feed them starch, we can't just feed them protein and fat. It's not possible at the moment. So we need to counterpart that with some alternative and we need to develop that. And I think that this is uh, an avenue for new research in the future. Yeah, I'm excited to see our next research over the years and yeah, see how we're going <laughs> to... I responded to that and I tried to get a way to work in home cats, like to create stuff to collect urine in home, but it's difficult. We'll see. Yeah. Um, final question now, I promise you. Uh, you worked with a lot of people. Your lab is a huge lab for those who don't know. I don't know how many students you have now, Dr. Karsioffi, but I'm sure it's plenty of as you have a extrusion kind of pilot plant, a lot of dogs and cats. I uh, probably have seen a lot of people graduating, going to the industry, a lot of successful students. So what do you think is a common trait of success, successful people that you have observed that went to the industry or from your lab that stay in academia? So 
What do you think makes a successful person? Yeah, I think that is, I see, what I most see with the students is the passion for science and animals. Because it's a hard work. Of course, if you go to industry just after your graduation, you have more income, you have better salary, but you gain less, but you have more fun when you love science and you love animals. This is the main point. And currently we was with 15 students in our laboratory, master and PhD. And I graduated more than 80 or, or 70. I, I don't have the number in my mind, but it's probably like that. And, but I do that. It's overload of work, of course. Like to me crazy many times. But it's because to see how happy people are when they're discovering science when they are doing their experiments and seeing their results, it's very good. This is for me the best part, is when they see people growing as people, growing as individuals, and see that they are happy with that, they are feel that they are improving. It's not only about dogs and cats, but also about people in this situation. And for me, this is what I most like across the world when they see the students and professors. They are very motivated because they're passionate about that. Yeah, that's very good. And uh, I agree that science is fun, that not all the money can buy that for sure. <laughs> the discovery aspect and seeing people yeah. growing and developing is you see, you very impressive. You see you stimulated to, because you are creating. People forget, but to be a good researcher, you need to be creative, like an artist because you need to find different alternatives to do the to overcome the challenge that you have in science. So I, I have this impression that is the most enjoyable part. Yeah. Well, Dr. Krasiofi, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, it was an honor to talk with you. For those who don't know Dr. Krasiofi, I think it's just a few of you. He's also the president for the European College of Veterinary and Cooperative Nutrition, and he has done so many good things for uh, pet nutrition and health in your industry over the years. So uh, thank you very much for accepting this invitation and for joining us today. And I hope we can have you back on uh, next, next podcast to maybe talk about your work with uh, client-owned cats and stable isotopes and learn more about your research and yourself. So thank you very much. Thank you, Julia. It was a great pleasure to talk about that. And this is a hot topic because of the lot of diver different opinions about starches and and it was for me a great pleasure to have this opportunity to talk with you and the audience. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.